Hello, everyone. Um, for those of you who may not recognize me right now, uh, I, uh, <laughs> I let my, uh, my barber do what he wanted to, and uh, this is what we get. But uh, I was going to joke that I lost my hair writing this sermon, but in actual fact, the sermon is an ode of joy. Uh, we're going to see as we turn to Colossians together, if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me now. We can find our way to Colossians. Hopefully I can find my way to Colossians. Um, this large print Bible should help. So I'm just going to get my notes ready here. Uh, okay, almost ready. All right. Okay, so, um, all right. This evening we return to the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Colossians. It's a short book. It only has four chapters, but it contains a wealth of information from which we can pursue Christ better as Christians. We believe the letter to be inspired, meaning the words therein are a faithful reflection of the Holy Spirit's teachings. We hope in the reading and study of it also may be inspired. So let's pray together. Dear Lord our God, creator and redeemer, lover of mankind, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Thank you, thank you, thank you, God, for your mercies toward us, that you should love us according to your divine mercy and compassion, that you have not forgotten about man whom you have made in your image, but have remembered us even in our transgressions and sins. You sent your Son, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we have been healed. We are grateful for that great love with which you have loved us, and pray that you would teach us your love to mankind as we seek to honor you in those whom you have made. Dear Lord, please bring to mind the wonders of your word wide in our hearts to receive the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Let us be changed by the preaching of your word. Thank you, Lord. So now that we've turned to Colossians, uh, let's, let's, let's read through from verse 9 to 14 of chapter 1. I like the idea of calling a portion of scripture a passage, by the way, uh, because we're going to pass through this part of the scriptures together. I find that kind of makes it memorable for me. But starting in verse 9. And so... From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Okay, um, so where were we? When the, the last session in, in this Colossians series, our brother Gord, Amy, 
provided us with an overview of major themes addressed in the letter of Paul to the Colossians. He then exposited for us the first eight verses of the letter, consisting of a general address to the saints at Colossae, followed by a prayer of thanksgiving from Paul and others with him, to God the Father for the faith, hope, and love evidenced by the church in Colossae, following their having learned the gospel from a believer named Epaphras. In this next section that we just read now this evening, Paul continues in his prayer, asking God to fill the believers in Colossae with the knowledge of God's will and list the fruit of prayer so answered. So we have kind of a two-part prayer where the first half of the, the, the section that Gord covered was a prayer of thanksgiving. Now this is Paul's prayer for the church. What does the text mean is the main question we're going to try to answer, and what can we learn from it? I would like to suggest four headings for each of the sections of this passage that we're going to consider together. The first one is hearing of faith and love. The second one is prayer, unceasing prayer. The third one is knowledge of God's will. And the fourth one is that we will walk worthily. So then, hearing of faith and love. Let's go back to verse 9. We read, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. And that and so moment, it refers us back to that previous half. We said that this prayer was in two halves. There's something in Paul's prayer of thanksgiving that he wants us to know about. That's why he says, and so. He says, from the day we heard. And that clues us into what to look for. What is it that Paul heard? He mentions in the previous paragraph, having heard of two things. If you follow with me to verse 4, we read, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints. Those are the two things that Paul heard. It says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and secondly, of the love that you have for all the saints. So here, he, Paul hears of the faith of the church, and he hears of the love that the church has for all the saints. I want to take a quick moment before we go further in this letter to testify very briefly, all too briefly, of the love that the church at Bath Road has for the saints. These are just a few of my observations, and trust me, they are not exhaustive. In fact, you might be scandalized at how minute they are. I'm not... There are bigger acts of love that I could mention that I've observed here. I'm just going to name a few because isn't it sometimes in the small things that we have the difficulty to step up, to step in, to try something new and to grow a little in our lives as Christians? Uh, Chris and Rebecca, they served quietly. They were counting ballots at the back of the church and placing themselves in the service of the deacons. Very helpful. Number two, also, the deacons, so at the time before the, the new deacons had been voted in, we had Andrew, Richard, and Rob sitting in the congregation during the annual business meeting, not really drawing attention to themselves, who've worked so long and hard to lead the church through a difficult transition. Number three, earlier in January, uh, Diane, UT, and Sandra were meeting after a midweek prayer meeting to put finishing touches on organizing last... Well, members of the church, and this is um, saying this anonymous, uh, just members, uh, I'm not naming anybody specific, although uh, 
I, I certainly could. I know who they are, but, or some of them, and only some of them. Members of the church are privately visiting shut-ins, people in need, the elderly, the sick, those celebrating having conceived the child, and the list could just trail on from there. Members of the church are also giving towards the needs of the church or the ministry of those who have been commissioned to spread the gospel by various means to all people. Now, what I want to ask you after having given a little bit of a litany of what I think is a good example of the church's love for, for, for one another in the spirit, what comes to mind when we hear of that love that the church has for all the saints? Perhaps, looking at things at the worst-case scenario, we, we doubt, thinking, if the church is so loving, why am I so miserable? Okay, that, that's the depths of it right there. But it, it does, it does get, go up from there. What do I have that I can give might be another question that comes to mind. Sometimes we may assume that we have nothing to give. Or what must I do to increase in love? In other words, how can I, how can I start being involved in what I'm seeing around me? Um, which would indicate that you're on the right path, on the narrow way, which is Christ Jesus our Lord. Maybe more like, that's impressive. Or we might think that those who are helping are getting something out of it that we don't have access to, but that if we did, all the while not having really the slightest idea of what they're getting out of it or how to get it, then we would be doing what they are doing. You know, that's good what they're doing, but that's for them and that's not for us. Sometimes we allow ourselves to distance ourselves from loving service with vague, ill-thought-out excuses, myself included. Or, or, or we might think, I'm touched. I'm genuinely touched by the expression of love around me. And I would like to give in return, even to give spirit. It flows from the love that Jesus has for us and is producing in us. It is independent of what is received in return. Now, I realize again that I didn't give you an exhaustive list, but hopefully you see that there are various ways of receiving the news of the love of the church. How does Paul receive the news of the love for all the saints in the church in Colossae? And that brings us to our second heading out of those four that we mentioned at the beginning, which is prayer, unceasing prayer. Let's turn back to verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking. Okay. Now, does not the love of the saints cause us to praise God? Yes. That explains Paul's earlier prayer of thanksgiving. The love of the saints also compels us to pray for. It could be something like, I want to pray that your ministry will be successful. It could be something like, I want to pray for your continued good health. It might be, I want to pray that your faith remains strong and vibrant. It could be, I want to pray that God would lighten your burdens, social or financial, maybe even governmental. But then we might ask, are these not all just words? Does God really answer prayer today? I think that when thinking through the efficacy of prayer, whether it works, one must ask oneself whom we are praying to. I suggest that the answer to the question of whether prayer works is that it all depends on who you've been talking to. A more important question than 
does prayer work, is does God think prayer will do us any good? And we would do well to recall the letter of James, which reads in chapter 4, verse 2, you do not have because you do not. But why does Paul pray unceasingly? Does Paul's imprisonment leave him with endless hours? Remember when Paul is writing this, he's in prison, he's in chains. Maybe he just doesn't have any better options. Well, how am I going to occupy my time? How am I not going to go crazy in this cell? I'd like to suggest that this is not the case. My main reason for saying that is that Paul is praying for something very specific. He could be praying for any number of things, but he specifies what it is for which he prays unceasingly, namely heading number three, knowledge of God's will. If we go back to verse nine, let's read it again. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Very specific what Paul is praying for here. He's praying that the church would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The way that Paul writes about this filling, it could be that it's a gradual thing. He's praying unceasingly because it's not like you know, we pray that uh, you're going to have a, generally speaking, we stop praying for a successful operation. But Paul here, he prays unceasingly. He doesn't need, I think, to hear back from them to know, have you been filled? Are you full of God's will? It seems to be a gradual thing. And that's why filling would be an appropriate metaphor, since when we fill something with a liquid, we rarely just dump it there. We, rather, the conventional images of a gradual pouring at a measured pace to avoid spill, either from haste or overflow. In any case, Paul is praying with confidence that God is answering his prayer and that the church in Colossae, the means by which Paul expects the knowledge of God's will to come to the Colossians, is through his prayers, his praying for them. This is not Paul merely telling them to go fill yourselves up with the knowledge of God's will. He's not telling the church in Colossae to pursue it. He's not expecting knowledge of God's will to come from self-effort, but to come from the activity of another, namely God. Paul is anticipating God's filling them with that knowledge. How much more ought we to pray and request the prayers of others that our church, that each and every one of us, individually and collectively, be filled with the knowledge of God's will. What does God want of us? What does God want independent of us? In other words, what's God's plan? Paul describes the knowledge of God's will as containing all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What riches we see are contained within the knowledge of God's will. By contrast, what poverty is found in its absence. In the words of a popular hymn, we read, O peace, we, what, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what need we do not carry everything to God in prayer. 
But what if instead we had prayed to obtain wisdom and understanding? If we had the wisdom to do what we ought and the understanding to accept the plans of God, would we not have peace and avoid needless pain? Now, caveat, this doesn't avoid all pain, but the needless kind. And I would, I'll take that any day. Perhaps our love for all the saints would surpass and overflow. Of great value is this knowledge of the will of God. How will we know if we are a terrorist for the knowledge of God's will? Paul doesn't leave us in the dark, wondering if we will recognize the light of day. Instead, he gives a helpful description, which is point number four. We will walk worthily. So let's read now uh, in verse 10, and we're going to go all the way to the first part of, of, chap, of verse 12. So in verse 10, what does it mean to, what is this walking worthily that we just mentioned in that heading? Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. I'm just going to stop there. So walking worthily of the Lord indicates a coherence. So when you're, something is worthy, there's, there's a coherence, there's a match, there's a fit between the Lord we serve and the service we render. So I'll repeat that. Walking worthy of the Lord indicates a coherence, a match, a fit between the Lord we serve, what God wants, and the service we render, what we do for him. In other words, we walk the talk. He says we will do. Where he sends, we will go. And it goes on, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Yes, <laughs> that's, that's one of my favorites. And when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, the scriptures here testify that our walk will be, what does it say in verse 10? Fully pleasing to him. That's alone his motivation. But what does a walk of this sort look like? Paul offers for us four descriptors to help us recognize the fruit of his prayer on behalf of the church. Verse 10, let's look at that again. Bearing fruit in every good work. Okay, let's take that on its own. James chapter 2, verse 17 says, So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Furthermore, we want to see fruit. Don't we want to see fruit for our labors? Sure, we plant and labor in faith. We're willing to do it not not seeing right away the results of our actions because we're planting in faith. But how our souls soar. Don't they just go sky high when it appears that God is working fruit through our labors? This past Friday, a little anecdote, I received a phone call from a woman in Chesterton, Missouri. She was calling Spurgeon Ministries which is run right here within Bath Road Baptist Church. Thank you very much to our volunteers especially. Nearly 1,500 kilometers away is where Chesterton, Missouri is. So that's a 14-hour drive down the Kingston-Windsor corridor past Michigan, 
Indiana and Illinois, and, and you'll be in Chesterton, Missouri. She had not heard of Spurgeon or Spurgeon Ministries prior to this week, but she stumbled on a, a booklet. Although she had been a Christian for 50 years, she had recently been touched by a booklet that was printed right here at Bathroad Baptist Church in 2012 called The Necessity of Regeneration. According to her testimony, it gave words to her conversion experience that had always been on the tip of her tongue, but she had never been able to put into words or to share with others. She called to thank the church and to ask if she could make copies for her friends. Of course, we were glad to oblige and were so encouraged by her call, we got to see the fruit of our works. When we all get to what a day of rejoicing that will be. Along with good works, we also grow in heading number two, the knowledge of God. Let's go to verse 10 again. It says, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. There we have it. The necessity of growing in the knowledge of God is perhaps best expressed in considering its opposite. So what would be the opposite of increasing in the knowledge or increasing in anything? Stagnation. Perhaps the best illustration of stagnation uh, of this sort would be to think of a marriage, which begins with an I do, but never leads to an increase of knowledge between bride and groom. Can you imagine where a husband knows his wife no more than the day he married her? There couldn't be any communication, since that would result in getting to know one another at least that much more. But doesn't that seem pointless? Pointless stagnation? How is one supposed to grow in love if there is no desire and no getting to know one another better? The point here is that a Christian who is not progressing... I'll take a little break here for a second. <laughs> Hi, Lily. Uh, the... <laughs> The point is that a Christian who is not progressing in his or with their Savior and is not walking in the way of Christ, not recognizing that it is Jesus who said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If the prayers of Paul or those who are praying for the knowledge of God's will are effective, then to the fruit of good works and an increase of, in the knowledge of God, there will also be the third thing, patience with joy. Let's, oh, before we turn there, I have a few words. Now, you may have heard of the tongue-in-cheek or insincere warning, not, uh, don't pray for patience, for fear that God will work patience in you through a trial specially designated to force you to develop patience. That doesn't sound very pleasant. However, to take that warning too seriously, indeed with any seriousness at all, would be to miss out on a blessing that turns our trials, many of them unavoidable, by the way, into meaningful and important milestones. Trusting in Christ, they become training grounds. Our companions become a band of brothers. We sweat and we bleed together, but we may even become heroes. If you think this is too Spartan, 
Like, I've never wanted to join the military. Well, I have bad news and I have good news. The bad news is that you're in a war already. The good news is that if you've joined the Lord's army, you're going to become something of a hero when God answers the prayer that Paul is praying. You see, he is praying that we are, in verse 11, let's, let's go to verse 11 now, that we are being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. If we don't think he has power to give us, we need only remember his glorious might. Does the God who made the mountains lack power? Is the God who formed the stars not great enough to help you in your time of need? Or to help me? Remember who he is. Paul testifies that this strength is sufficient for all endurance and patience. Not only good for some trials and not others, but good for all trials and challenges. And not only that, there is icing on this cake. Paul, that we might have joy. And who doesn't like icing or joy? Joy is the contentment. Joy is the light. Joy is heavenly. Where does that leave us? How do you suppose that these three gifts we've been given impact or influence us? Giving thanks to the Father. That's the last, the last, the last piece of the puzzle. In verse 12 to verse 14, we're going to read the end of the passage that we've entered into together. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We are thankful, thankful for God the Father's delivering us or rescuing us from the domain of darkness. We are no longer no longer under the power or under the authority of the enemy who shakes his fist at God. We are no longer slaves of idolatry and disproportionate desires. And we did not happily run as though all that kept us from God was maybe some little inconvenient but effective betrayal without even a dying breath. God the Father did the pulling. God the Father effected the rescue. It says right here, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. But we are thankful. Thankful for God the Father's transferring us or transporting us to the kingdom of his beloved son. God the Father has revived us through his son. And he is God the Father's beloved son. From the domain of darkness and the adversaries of God, to the kingdom of God, the Father's beloved Son, where love is, so inheritance we share. What an inheritance God the Father has qualified us for. God the Father, in his qualifying us, has made us fit for the kingdom of his beloved Son. The king of that kingdom has won our redemption. Who is the king of that kingdom? The Son of God, 
the Son of the Father, Jesus Christ our Lord, the King of that kingdom has won our redemption, has gifted us with forgiveness of sins. What more can we ask for? And yet, let us not cease to ask, as Paul did, that those who evidence faith in Christ Jesus and of the love for all the saints would be filled with the knowledge of God's will so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Let us not be counted by Almighty God as those who have not because they ask not. Rather, let us be inspired by the words of Holy Scripture and the love of the saints to seek, to ask, to knock. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 8 reads, For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. So we hear the voice of our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have heard the apostle and love of the church in Colossae prayed unceasingly that God would fill them with the knowledge of God's will so that they would walk worthily in all good works, knowledge of God, patience with joy, and thanksgiving to the Father. May the Lord himself bring us up in the training and admonition of the Lord. 